Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SEL Convergence. We are back again. And I know I say this a lot, but I really am excited because we have another wonderful guest with us, someone who brings a lot of knowledge and expertise to the table that Tom and I don't necessarily have. And it's really nice to have a fresh perspective and have someone come in and kind of open up our conversation in a different way. So, uh, Instead of giving too much away, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over, Tom, and I'd love it if you could introduce our new guest. Mike, thanks so much. And like you, I'm really excited. Uh, we have with us tonight Dr. Kelly Munger from Fuel Ed. And one of my excitements, well, I have two really starting off. One, Kelly and her friends at Fuel Ed share our passion for social emotional learning. My other excitement is I'm going to get to be a learner tonight, as I am every day, but especially tonight because Kelly's expertise is in neurobiology. And I can't wait to hear, Kelly, how you are connecting and infusing social emotional learning in neurobiology. So please, friend, in, uh, introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your work kind of in an overview fashion. Sure. So I will give you the quick version, um, which is that I did start in the special education classroom. Um, I was actually in my early 20s, an aide in a classroom um, with high emotional and behavioral needs. And I really spent that time um, really just building relationships and connection. I was sort of there as the calming uh, presence in the classroom. And from there, um, I really developed a career at the intersection of education and therapy um, and sort of um, moved into a therapeutic career, worked with families and saw, oh, man, there are all of these gaps in how we actually calm and care for children inside of school environments. Yeah. And, and so moved uh, back into my PhD program so that I could impact um, at a more systemic level. And that's when I met Megan Marcus, um, who is the founder of Fuel Ed. And around that time, she had finished up working on Louis Cozzolino's book. She was um, huge in helping to write the book, The uh, Neuroscience of of education. Um, and so the neuro, I'm sorry, the neuroscience of relationships yeah. inside of education. And so she um, really brought a lens of, okay, wow, we have all of this neuroscience about how powerful relationships are mm -hmm. in terms of creating um, environments for optimal developmental flourishing. And, and yet we don't really infuse this into teacher training necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so that is really where Fuel Ed was born. And I met Megan around that time. And it was, I always say it was love at first sight for me and Fuel Ed, because um, what Megan was doing is what I wanted to be doing, which was to help educators grow their capacity to build secure relationships mm -hmm. with both their colleagues and of course their students. Um, and we think that that's really an under leveraged um, piece in the education system. And that's kind of what we're on a mission to, to really come alongside educators and support them. We share that mission. That's, that's something that gets us excited every day. You mentioned four words in that introduction that resonate with me. 
and I want to explore them a, a bit with you. Relationship, you actually mentioned relationship twice and how important that is in professional development. And I want to explore that. You also mentioned connection. And, and one of my favorites is, uh, I imagine might be a favorite of yours, Dr. Brene Brown, uh, and, and that beautiful quotation, you know, we are hardwired for connection. And then you mentioned these two words, calm and care. What a beautiful combination of words. Can you go down that road a little bit? Calm and care. As we build relationships and connection, teacher and student. Right. So really what the neuroscience of the past few decades has shown us in no uncertain terms is that it's very difficult to grow, to explore, to learn to flourish and to develop to your potential if you are not in a state of calm. And likewise, it is difficult to be in a state of calm if you do not feel cared for. Yes. And um, I think what's important to point out there is there is a difference between being cared for and feeling cared for. Um, And what I mean by that is that uh, I think most children probably do have an adult in their life who, who genuinely cares for them and loves them. But the ability to actually internalize that and experience that and feel that in your body, which is indicated by a state of calm, um, groundedness, that safe and social state, um, that is, is actually something that is difficult for some children, wow. especially children who have any history of not feeling safe. Um, that could be related to trauma. That could be related to um, experience with disability, right? Instance of um, maybe it's been harder for me, or maybe it's been harder for me to communicate my needs or have my needs met. And and so we find um, there that there is a group of children who have a hard time feeling that safety and that care, um, and therefore have a hard time feeling calm, and therefore have a hard time really flourishing inside the system we have set up. So I want to take you back to that calm. And you mentioned learning. Is it learning originates in calm? Is it learning is nurtured by calm? Help us understand that more. Well, I think that learning um, is going to, that's a great question. I would say that learning is a natural state for children when they are calm. Love it. So, so a great example I would give um, from a preschool classroom that I worked in um, with high, high trauma, stress, and transition in these kids' lives. And in the first few weeks of class, when they were joining our class, they would stick to the wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And so there's yeah. this of protection, self protection. Whoa, I'm going to stay in this hyper vigilant state. I'm scanning the environment for threat. I'm focused on survival. I'm focused on things like food and water and basic needs being met. Um, But once there is a sense of trust earned between these beautiful teachers that we had in this classroom and these students, then you would see a natural um, growth and ability to explore the classroom, right? So these are young children. So they're learning through exploration in a very physical sense, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) knocking against things, making circles around the room, building things, knocking them down. 
And so um, I was talking about this the other day and I was thinking we could do a study and we could put GPS on these kids <laughs> and we could actually map. I think that the safer they feel, the more activity wow. we were seeing in the middle of the room. I love it. And the sense of, I don't have to watch my back. I don't have to yes. look behind me, um, but I can do what I naturally do, which is right. A natural state of growth, just like a plant when they have sun and water, um, a plant is just going to grow. It just, it just, sure, sure. <laughs> so here we are in this now year long pandemic schools have adjusted in every way they possibly can. I'm a, I'm a champion of educators. We also are coming through another significant wave of social justice. And I believe we need to. We also are, I believe, being torn apart as a nation politically. So where does that, not only where does that leave our children, where does that leave our educators? Because when you mention that child who sticks to the wall, I've seen educators who are sticking to the wall in professional development. That's right. Absolutely. I've seen that as well. Um, I want to validate that. So, um, you know, one thing I start with, uh, I should fully disclose I'm married to an educator as well. (laughs) So I live with... (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Uh, my husband is a, a science uh, teacher, high school science teacher of 21 years. So, Fantastic. Um, I think, you know, I began from a place of empathy for our educators. I understand why you would yes. be against the wall. I understand yeah. Yeah. Um, how pervasive a culture of underappreciation um, yeah. and really stress and loss. I see teachers this year going through loss and grief. Yes. Um, yes. And that's sort of, there's a spectrum there. Of, I don't know where this student went. You know, I've talked with teachers who literally don't know what happened to a student yeah. as they disappeared, right? Um, in the chaos of the pandemic, all the way to, I just miss being in quote, normal teacher. I yep. just miss, I miss my classroom or I miss my routine or I miss getting to see the full face of my students. Yeah. And so um, I kind of, I, I start in that place of empathy for educators. And, and I also, you know, there's been a lot of talk of like lost learning. And I think that actually, um, again, in a different conversation recently, we were like, nah, it's not lost learning, it's lost safety. Mm-hmm. It's actually more key here. Yeah. And that's true for the educator population, I think, as well as students. There are educators who do feel less safe, um, less supported, more maybe even um, traumatized or betrayed by the year Mm. we've had. And and then certainly there are a lot of children who are facing multiple layers of trauma and stress, um, both just through circumstances inside of their homes perhaps, and then also through the traumatic loss of structure and routine. It's, It's like we took the trellis that children grow on and we just we ripped it down. Um, and then we're sort of trying to build that back this year, but, but it's, it's to varying degrees and with varying success. And the truth is, is we know that children are most regulated by the actual presence of another body in the room, (laughs) another, Mm -hmm. 
beating heart, warm eye contact, sure. voice, the presence of someone, which is really much more challenging, especially as you go with younger kids to, to get across on the screen. Um, yes. As much as our educators are pouring their heart out into, heart out into that and innovating and adapting, um, I hold that tension of, wow, look what educators have done this year. And also, wow, look what we've all been through. Yeah. Um, it's really hard. Really hard. You mentioned empathy, and that's that's one of my favorite feelings. It's one of my favorite concepts. And, and in your work, helping children to find that emotional safety. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, uh, from a therapeutic end, mm -hmm. what you would do with children. And also, what, what would you want to bring to the educator to help them uh, connect with children empathetically? Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously, um, well, when I think of students, I, I simply think of providing the, uh, just the, the permission to fill a whole spectrum of feelings and emotions, freedom to feel. Um, and along with that, I want students to have someone in their life who can really mirror and validate that spectrum of emotion and experience and even sensation in the body. Um, wow, I see, you know, I see your shoulders are tight. Wow. Um, I wonder if you're feeling anxious. And, and so at Fuel Ed, um, our approach actually is to provide that to students and children by providing safe space for educators, um, right? Because we know that regulation or the ability to be calm and grounded is a parallel process. Mm -hmm. And so in our minds, we're actually more interested in helping educators to regulate so that they can regulate students. Um, and so the way that we do that is we, we actually do really intensive training in the science skills and self-awareness of secure attachment. Um, and, and so, you know, in, in regard to empathy, we do provide very direct, discreet instruction around empathy skills, the skill of empathic mirroring. But I think what's even more important to that um, is just that giving educators a space to process their own stories. Mm, I love that. Tell me more about that, please. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the science of folks like Dan Siegel has really um, taught the field that in order to really show up in a calm and grounded way for others, we need to have made some sense of our own story. Otherwise, um, right, the past is always present and it's always popping up in our current everyday relationships. And so, so what we do is that we actually help educators basically construct their own attachment stories, their own attachment histories. Mm. We help them to tell that story with, with honesty and then to receive empathy inside of a safe environment for whatever it is that their story has brought. And, and so in that process, this is what we've learned through our research is that educators tell us, they, this is the phrase that we've kind of heard in a lot of different spaces, but I'm, I'm seeing my students through a different lens. Yeah. Um, and so like glasses, once we, once we can see our own attachment story clearly, 
we actually grow as sort of in a paradox in our ability to see other people's sure. stories more clearly. And there's this really amazing um, cascading effect that happens, right? Because then I see a student's behavior not as personal affront to me, um, but as a reflection of their story and their stress. Mm. That is incredibly powerful and meaningful work. Can you help our listeners? How do you do that? How do you create the safe environment to allow an educator to create their attachment story? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have this amazing team of trainers um, at Fuel Ed. And so we usually work with um, district and school partners and we will, we, we do a variety of training right now. We're all online, um, but usually we're, we try to be in person back in the old days, yes. back in the olden days of in-person <laughs> training. And um, we have an amazing uh, group of trainers who I would say their superpower is that they are high, 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 high in empathy. Mm. And through their empathic mirroring, they lead educators very carefully through that construction. We, we do use a constructivist style in our training, which is just to say that we actually help educators to build um, these skills through their own process, through their own exploration. And we provide scaffolding or trellis for that. Okay. And so our, our, our sort of flagship training is a three-day intensive. Um, okay. That would walk you through that. Um, but even after that, we provide spaces what we call empathy circles for educators to show up and to really digest their, what they're going through. Um, And so, yeah, we we're doing that. We're also um, developing some content, some video-based content, a little teaser um, that will provide some more scaffolding for educators to be able to do this even in their own time at their own pace. and it's our goal that every educator in America, that it just becomes a part, uh, just like being a therapist, right? When I, when I trained as a therapist, I was required to construct a coherent attachment narrative um, about my story. And that was scaffolded by my counseling program. And so we actually believe that teachers really need this as well, um, because teaching is a highly, highly interpersonal profession. Um, and of course, burnout is high, which makes sense because teachers are pouring out their hearts every day. Um, and so without um, being able to be poured into, <laughs> uh, that's hard. It's yes. not not very sustainable for a lot of people. Thank you. So and, uh, how many folks are you working with at any one time? Wow, that's a good question. Um, well, so this year we had the honor to build actually a video series. So we have been, we've actually had, I think, a 60 something thousand users of our, of the video series. But we, I think from last year, we're working with a few thousand educators a year. Um, but then more than that, through just opportunities like this, right, with sharing at conferences, sharing on podcasts, our blog series, we're really actually trying to reach educators kind of at any level that they can, that they can um, handle, right? Because we also know that the biggest barrier to doing this work isn't an educator's willingness or desire, 
um, but rather the time and the space. Yes. yes, yes. You talked about regulation. So help help our listeners understand uh, this process of regulation. Help them, uh, and Mike, jump in here as a special educator, please, uh, at any point in time. But uh, Kelly, help 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 us understand. Sure. Okay. Regulation is my favorite topic. Good. <laughs> I think it's the key to so many things. So, right, regulation is really um, just our ability, ability, like I said earlier, to be in that space of being safe, calm, grounded, and really social. Um, we are much more uh, interpersonally savvy when we are calm and regulated. And so um, what we see in very broad brushstrokes in our student population and in our adult, every human population is that we will often become dysregulated when um, we are dealing with more stress than we can handle. Mm. So when we're dealing with stress, that actually pulls us out of what's called our window of tolerance. And our window of tolerance, right, is just the amount of stress we can handle while still staying calm. So the really, really key piece is that we all have a different window of tolerance. Some humans, uh, the, some of the scientists would call them dandelions, right? They have a wide window of tolerance. They can grow by the interstate with 18 wheelers splashing mud on them. And so, easy to stay calm. And then we have our orchids um, and our orchids are going to have more narrow windows of tolerance, can handle less stress. And stress could include, especially with children, maybe not especially, adults are this way as well, can include hunger, right? Yeah. Or a bad night's sleep yep. um, or stressful experience at home or maybe difficult when we're talking about disability, um, difficulty understanding something that's happening, um, challenges around learning. And so what we see is that if you have a narrow window of tolerance, you're more of an orchid, then if your environment isn't fitted to you, right? Mm -hmm. Orchids need really particular environments to flourish. Yeah. Um, then what that looks like at school is that you're constantly in dysregulated or stressed behavior, which is... Um, for some kids, it's more of a, what I would call the red zone um, or from the zones of regulation, right. which would be the child who's running hot and high. Woo, like a lot going on there. Um, or we have our, our kids who go more blue. And so you have the kids who are running low and slow and they might be more flat um, or have a, more of a, a sad or maybe even just an apathetic affect. And so the process of regulation, or I would say co-regulation in this case, would be coming alongside a dysregulated student and actually supporting or walking with them back into that safe green zone. Mm -hmm. um, and so that of course requires a lot of resources, time, space, patience. <laughs> to be able to actually engage in that process. Um, and that's where the, some of the systemic issues come in, right? Because if you have a large class size, if you have, or in some of the schools that we work with, you have a classroom full of kids with narrow windows of tolerance. Mm. What you actually end up with is a teacher with a narrow window of tolerance. Well, say that again, please. 
So if you have a class full of students who have a narrow window of tolerance, often what you can end up with is a teacher who also has a narrow window of tolerance mm. because the stress is so tremendous. Okay, okay. Um, so it's, it's like, if I can, it's like working in a hospital. It's like working in an ER. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right, there, there, and there's a lot going on and there's a lot of need. Um, and that, that's a good, that is a good metaphor because I think it can feel for some educators like triage. Yeah. Um, and survival. Mike, I, I, I'm really fascinated. What Kelly's sharing with us right now, how does this resonate with you? Uh, a, a man who, who I know deeply cares about his special education students and, uh, you know, is it, just a few hours out of saying goodbye to them. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Um, I, I was, I was surprised by the, the perspective of the, through the teacher lens of, of, um, of where that regulation piece comes into play. And it, it makes a lot of sense that your students can kind of influence how you're going to be able to react, react to these situations, how you're remaining calm and your approach to working with them. And I, I see it with so many people where they end up picking up these little idiosyncrasies or they start reacting the same way the kids do. And I never really thought of it from the sense that you're trying to build this climate in your room or whatever your environment might be. And that if you have enough pushback, that it, it starts working the other way against you. And I guess that's some, I don't know, maybe that's some kind of survival mechanism or just... If you can't beat them, join them. I don't. I don't know enough about that, but it's 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 really interesting to think of those those different windows for kids, and then especially for the teachers, because I'm already like thinking of the students I work with and the colleagues I have, and like ah, you're an orchid. I've got I've got a word for it now. Now that I know you're an orchid, what do I do with you? So it's it's I, I've never heard it phrased that way. So that's that's really interesting to me. Yeah, I'm, 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 all, I'm already wondering how the how those that 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 awareness like when once you have that awareness where does it go from there mm -hmm. what can you do with that information yeah that's a great question do you want me to answer that please <laughs> <laughs> right so uh, you're referring to awareness of the orchid dandelion window of tolerance dynamic yeah yeah so um, kind of once you've been able to name that and, and like you said, gain awareness, I think that is the beautiful moment where there's a pause that's carved out between a student's behavior and your response or reaction. Um, because that becomes a moment of, oh, whoa, okay, stress behavior, um, where's my stress response here? Yeah. And so kind of, I think what that looks like is more about the educator than the student, because that's the moment when there is a deep breath, um, which is not to give, you know, it's not that easy, right? I, I mean, sometimes I'm annoyed when people are like, just breathe, you know, <laughs> or educators, put your oxygen mask on first. It's it's not that simple, but but it is a complex and internal process um, that 
and we know that self-awareness does create others' awareness, awareness of others. And so that is the moment where I think that in that pause, you're basically creating space to not become irritable, to not become reactive, to not become punitive, um, but to actually attune to the student. And it becomes less about like, oh, my story's being triggered here. And more about this student is clearly in stress behavior. What does this student need? And it's that really subtle shift from kind of like what's wrong with this kid to what does this child need right now in order to move back to the group. Or if you need as an educator to say, and as I'm a parent as teenagers too, as a parent to say, uh, what do I need to get back in the green zone? Because, because we know that in the green zone, we're just more likely to be gentle, warm, patient, calming, and even great at setting limits and boundaries and yeah. being clear, right? Because that's when our prefrontal cortex is back online. We're better at more complex social thinking and we're able to be creative, collaborative, basically solve problems together. Um, when we're in that more limbic system brain, which is that kind of that stress threat place, we're reactive and we're quick and we're, we actually aren't great at perceiving even what's happening very accurately. Kelly, can you share one or two, what you might refer to as best practices uh, for our educators that are listening tonight uh, to help them work with their children around uh, regulation? Yes. Okay. That's a great question. So I'm going to throw a curveball in there. Go ahead. First, best practice every educator, if you have access, get a therapist. Um, best practice number one is for educators to engage with their own therapeutic care. I love it. I love it. Amen. Amen. Let's do it. (laughs) Uh, and so that would absolutely, um, and, you know, uh, working with insurance companies, checking through your HR benefits, finding resources, honestly, go to fuel ads website. We have free empathy circles and events for the community. Mm all the time. So come um, and get that, that care and that empathy you deserve as an educator to feel seen and safe in your story. Um, I want that for every educator. And from there, let me think, second best practice. I would say um, really using empathic mirroring in your classroom. And if, if you don't, necessarily know what that would look like. Again, check out the Fuel Ed blog or Google Empathic Mirroring. Brene Brown has awesome resources about empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but learn um, the skill of actually mirroring students so that they are empowered to solve problems and get creative. When you can sue the student, they start solving their own problems. And that's a beautiful thing. Explain to us what does mirroring look like? Yes. So, well, let's do a little demo, Tom. Yeah, sure. Uh, Good, great. <laughs> tell me about, actually, let's, let's talk to Mike. Because oh, no. <laughs> Mike, tell me something you're going through, and I will mirror you. Just a couple of sentences. 
something I'm going through. Yeah. All right. Um, so recently, uh, up until recently, I was teaching completely virtual, uh, supplemental special ed. And now I'm back in the building doing that, but I'm also teaching students in person at the same time. Wow. So you've made this huge transition. And so you're feeling uh, overwhelmed would probably be the, not even in a negative way, just it's a lot. So finding a space for all those floating pieces to live is a, is a big, is a big deal. Yeah. So there's a lot on your plate. There's a lot to manage and it feels like uh, overwhelming and maybe even just a little too much. Yeah. At times it can, it can feel that way. Yeah. Okay. So I mirrored Mike. Mike, did that feel okay? (laughs) Yeah. I feel good. It didn't didn't hurt at all. (laughs) Notice I didn't try to fix you. I didn't say, well, have you, or, oh man, well, it'll get better. I didn't give you a solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't try to. Yeah. That's the hardest part I think is, is the not trying to fix something. Or, you know, it's, and, and well, I don't want to get off topic, but like, I think like love languages come into it a little bit. So for me, like acts of service is a big thing. So it's like, oh, they need something. What am I going to do? I'm going to do something for them. I'm going to try to fix this. Um, So I I love that you had said that because that's, that's a hard one for me personally to not do. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for you not to jump in. See, I'm so You're doing it again. (laughs) (laughs) And and you know what, Mike, a lot of teachers are so super fixers. They're, mm-hmm. they're, yeah. That's why they're in it. And so yeah. it's a little bit of uh, learning to do. And we spend a few hours on it in our three-day whole educator collective of just kind of helping deprogram that, that instinct to fix, 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 and to move educators toward a soothing, calming, empathic approach. You just did it with your voice. Well, I know what I I just wanted to say, Kelly, it's such a treat for me to listen to a great therapist and at the same time know that you are immersed in education. Uh, A long time ago, I feel like saying centuries ago, uh, uh, my initial training before education was gestalt therapy. So I mean, it's, I've been in education for 48 years. So before that oh, was a, a brief career in therapy. And I I never saw them as very different. Mm, yeah. It's all about human potential and human growth. Yes, I love it. And I, I so before we say goodnight, what what essential piece of information do you want to make sure? all of our listeners here tonight, Kelly? I, I want our listeners to hear that resilience mm-hmm. is a very hot topic, that resilience is relational. Mm-hmm. It is the foundation of being able to bounce back from trauma mm-hmm. and stress is having really, really safe relationships. Wow. You are just really hitting something for me. So Mike knows this. Um, on October 30th, I went through a quadruple bypass. Oh, wow. Uh, didn't know it was coming. Yeah. 
had no signs, no symptoms, nothing. Luckily, again, thank God, uh, had some routine tests that revealed it. And up until that time, and up until you just said what you said, Kelly, I would have put a lot of stock in my resilience as an individual. Mm, yep. And then I met this exquisite surgical team and uh, developed a relationship with them before, I guess during, but I'm not sure, and after. Mm-hmm. And then the nurses and the therapists and the aides, I was in the hospital for three days. Mm. And I remember having an intimate relationship with my first nurse, the one with things coming out of my neck and coming out of my chest and coming out of my stomach, got me on a walker only a few hours after a six hour surgery and we're walking down the, at least I was trying to walk down the hallway and we're playing back and forth with words because mm. she somehow said a word that I said, oh, that's a great word. And, and Mike knows I love words. And I, <laughs> me too, Dom. <laughs> I, I, I fell in love with these people, Kelly, yeah. and they saved my life. And, and when you said resilience is relational, my new friend, I don't know, I've heard that before, and I just loved it. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that resonates with you. I really Oh, gosh, that. yes. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, educators, the last thought I would leave you with is that educators often don't know their full impact yeah. um, in that way. They don't know necessarily how many lives they've saved yeah. because it's a really long story that kids are living and they often miss kind of sort of the, the later parts of the story um, when kids have moved on. And so I, uh, if I could give educate, if I could just wave a, my magic wand and give educators one thing, I think I would just be able to collect letters from their students, um, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years later and send them to the educators so that they could know how it can give me the chills to even say it, how powerful their impact is in this world. I love that. I love that. Dr. Kelly Munger from Fuel Ed, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for, for listening with us. And uh, I would love to see you teaching a graduate course for us someday. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it indeed, Mike. Thanks so much for producing. Thanks so much for making all this happen. I'm so grateful, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure. And thanks to everyone who uh, tuned in, listened. Um, Kelly, one last thing before we go. If someone were, if someone was interested in learning about more about you or Fuel Ed or the work that you're doing, what's the what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, we have a lot going on at our website fueledschools.org. You can find out about our free events and also about the trainings we offer, our blog. And then of course, follow us on Instagram or Twitter at fueledschools. Wonderful. And I'll put all that in the show notes for anybody that wants to check that out. And just thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us. It was a pleasure.